In the largest Sunday school classroom of the church that I grew up in, there hung this painting. And I have it up here. Can you see it? As you can see, in the center of the picture is this massive cross, big enough for people to walk on. It hangs suspended in space, floating above this ominous red and black realm that threatens to swallow up whoever takes a wrong step on either side. The people in this picture walking on the cross are clearly headed somewhere, and from the looks of it, that somewhere is a city. A gleaming, bright city with a wall around it and lots of sunshine. Do you see that? It's as if Thomas Kincaid and Dante got drunk together at a party and somewhere around midnight started philosophizing and someone pulled out a paintbrush. This kind of image or idea has a way of lodging itself in your psyche. And this is especially true as it comes to religion. Perhaps this painting never hung on the wall in your Sunday school classroom or at your grandma's house. But perhaps some Sunday school teacher drew this for you. Or perhaps they showed you something that looked like this at some point in your religious education. There are, of course, many Many theological frightening things, theologically frightening things, downright jerky things about this image. The way it somehow seems to morph Dungeons and Dragons and Billy Graham and a barbecue pit all into the same story. The way it seems to divide God from God incarnate in Jesus, presenting God as distant and other, and Jesus as this rescuer the one who saves us from God's wrath and gets us onto God's good side. But most of all, what stands out in this image, what gets lodged in our psyche, is this idea of boundary and of movement over a boundary, of movement from one realm to another realm. What stands out is the boundary marked by fire and suspended cross, the division between sinful and righteous, bad and good, wrong and right, out and in, estranged and saved, non-Christian, Christian. Of course, giant crosses do not hang suspended in the air in the world you and I call church, but for those of us who grew up anywhere near the church, whether it was every Sunday or occasional vacation Bible school, this is how deep down in our psyche, we understand the life of faith, the journey of salvation as this movement from here to there, as a movement from sinful to holy, bad to good, wrong to right, out to in, estranged to saved, non-Christian to Christian. We can't escape this boundary. And this is why for much of my adult life, I have kind of despised Romans because when I think of Romans, I think of this image and the countless jerky, downright douchey ways that a variety of pastors and theologians have attempted to explain atonement, explain salvation. Even in seminary, it felt like Romans drew a boundary between those of us who planned to be pastors in the local church and those who were just there to pontificate about soteriology and eschatology and all theologies. I've always thought of Romans as just 
different from the rest of Paul's letters to the early churches, while the others felt pastoral in either an encouraging or a challenging way, Romans has just always felt to me like Paul was this hipster theologian, not a pastor, sitting in a seminary classroom, just pontificating. Romans always felt like Paul's indulgent theological treatise, too complicated, right, to truly be understood or to glean meaning out of it. Did you notice the way your ears just kind of turned off as Kate read Romans 1 today? We like, we like the sweet, compact parables and teachings of Jesus. We feel comfortable there. I feel comfortable there. I like the stories of the Old and New Testament, but Romans just seems to erect a boundary for us, for me. Until recently. Until Romans turned for me. One of my favorite biblical scholars, N.T. Wright, talks about Romans as being this giant mountain. And people for generations have been climbing to the top of that mountain to see what they can see. And some have climbed up the south side and some up the north side and some up the rocky face and some up the long and winding road to the top and all have such different experiences of it that when we get to the top of the mountain, we all just disagree about what mountain we're even standing on. Each of these paths up the mountain, each of these paths through Romans is called, and here's a fancy word, here's your two-cent word for today, it's called your hermeneutic. Your hermeneutic is the path, the lens through which you read the book. Romans turned for me because my hermeneutic turned. While many come to Romans to map out a way of salvation, how is it that we are saved? How is it that we are to understand atonement? Um, how is it that we should behave as a Christian who has walked to the cross over to the bright and shiny city of God? While many come to Romans as a means to understand the movement from one realm to another realm, the movement from sinful to righteous, good to bad, right to wrong, estranged to elected by God, I've come to understand Romans as a how-to manual for being a Christian without being a jerk. Because I think this is what Paul is doing. Why do I think this is what Paul is really doing? Here's where I download textbooks full of historical context in about three minutes. So bear with me. At the end of the letter, Paul mentions and thanks a whole lot of people, and he specifically mentions in a really odd way two people in particular, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is a woman's name, and it appears first, which in itself is just interesting to me. She was an incredibly important person to Paul and to the life of the early church, and many people think she actually wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Priscilla and her husband Aquila are Jewish people who believe in Jesus. If you remember early in the church, there are no Christians. There are only Jewish people who believed in Jesus. Eventually, some non-Jewish people, Gentile is what we call them, began to believe in Jesus too. And now we've got these two different kinds of people, Jewish and Gentile, believing the same thing. And so we've got to call them something else. And so outsiders began to call them little Christs. We'll call them Christians, they thought. At the end of the 40s, there was this emperor 
his name was Claudius, who became very skeptical of the Jewish people who, who believed in Jesus. Claudius was not a fan of proselytizing, and he felt that there were some Jewish people in Rome who were just stirring up too much trouble. They were just a little too passionate for the cause for their good. And so Claudius, in response to this, kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. Priscilla and Aquila, who were from Rome, would have lost in one fell swoop all their property, all their resources, their entire family connection, as they were kicked out and they moved to Corinth, which is where Paul eventually meets up with them. Years pass, and after the emperor Claudius, there was this emperor Nero. And at the early part of his reign, he later doesn't like them, but at the early part of his reign, he let all the Jewish people come back into Rome. And so Paul, at the end of Romans, Paul writes, I am sending them back to you. Meaning, hey, Gentiles, all you non-Jewish people who have been practicing Christianity really differently, who have in these years taken over the church in Rome, hey, you Gentiles, you, to you, I am sending Priscilla and Aquila, my beloved, my beloved Jewish friends, back to you. I'm sending your Jewish brothers and sisters back to you. Here's the major difference, though, if it's helpful for you. Jewish people who believed in Jesus, were still living by Jewish law. That meant that they weren't eating particular foods. They were worshiping in very particular ways. They were using words from the Jewish faith for other Christian things, words that non-Jewish people didn't understand. It was so important to them that they follow all the laws of Moses. Jewish Christians wanted everyone else to abide by this law too, and Jews and Gentiles alike, that's what they thought it looked like to be Christian. In order to fully live into this law, there was this procedure males had to go through in order to confirm their allegiance, circumcision. Not only do Gentiles not care who Moses is, they're not too keen on following a law that asks them to put a knife up to their genitals. And so when Claudius kicks all the Jewish people out of Rome and in Rome breeds this Gentile Christianity, Paul then has a predicament on his hands. He's now sending his friends back to Rome so that they can be one church together. Enter Christian strife. Enter two denominations, basically. Not only are Christians at odds with the world around them, but they're at odds with each other internally too. And all throughout Romans, Paul is pleading, pleading for a sense of unity between the two of them. And so Paul spends most of the letter talking about things that don't really apply to our context, but are actually crucial to our context. Because what I think that Paul is trying to do is to get this group of people to get past their differences in order to be of one mind, one heart, one soul, one baptism, one spirit. That they can exist together as the body of Christ collectively. But not only that. The problem is, within breaking down the boundaries between Gentile and Jew, many a theologian and pastor have erected another boundary in its place between non-Christian and Christian using Romans as a means to delineate unsaved from saved, right from wrong, out from in, estranged from elected. I think that's where we get Paul wrong and make Romans this 
treatise rather than an invitation. Paul doesn't just call for unity within the church. Paul envisions a world where people who submit to a universal power that lives and moves and beckons humanity toward life can exist together despite the differences in the way they live that out. In fact, I think Paul's main purpose is not to erect another boundary between saved and unsaved, sinful and righteous, non-Christian Christian, but rather he's trying to teach the early church how to be Christian without being a jerk. In other words, how to hold on to the things that for us are really, really, really important without being spiteful, without othering each other. Today in Romans 1, we're getting a piece of this story. Paul greets his people with deep, deep affection, thanks God for them, commends them for the ways that they have bore the love of God and grace of Jesus in their community. And then Paul gets really bold. He says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I'm not afraid to call you out. Here's where I begin to challenge you, push you in uncomfortable ways. I'm not afraid of the gospel. It's God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith. As it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. This passage right here lays the groundwork for the entire book of Romans. How these two verses and all other verses, even remotely similar to these, are interpreted lay the groundwork for whether the church is in the business of erecting boundaries or breaking them down. The painting that hung in that Sunday school classroom, this diagram of salvation, of sin and righteousness, has been perpetuated by a particular hermeneutic of this passage, namely this. That those who have faith in Jesus are righteous. Those who have faith in Jesus have been saved. They are on this side of that massive pit. They have moved across the cross to the holy city. And those who do not have faith in Jesus are robbed of the righteousness of God and are estranged from God and are positioned on this side of the pit. For so long we have interpreted this passage as God's righteousness being revealed in the gospel from our faithfulness, from our ability to walk across that cross, from our ability to have faith. The righteous person will live by their own faith is how we've interpreted it. And a boundary is erected between sinful and righteous, out and in, non-Christian, Christian. And this boundary is fully dependent on our faith or unfaith in Christ. This boundary is fully dependent on us. But some theologians, some theologians have dared to interpret this differently. Many call this the pistis Christu debate. Pistis, Greek for faith, Christu, Greek for Christ. Some theologians have dared to say, perhaps, perhaps faith isn't dependent upon us. 
in the Greek, prepositions are many times interchangeable. And so what we have as in could be of, what we have as from could be for, what we have as for could be from. What difference would it make? What difference would it make? What boundaries would it tear down if we dared to interpret this as the righteous person will live by the faith of Jesus? What difference would it make if our feeble attempt to have faith to gain righteousness was replaced by Christ's faith in the Father and Christ's unending righteousness. When Paul says the righteous will live by faith, he's actually using this old rabbinic tactic. The rabbis would do this really interesting thing where they would say one half of a phrase and the half of the phrase they said was important, but not nearly as important as the other half that they didn't say that everyone else would have known. For example, so if I say, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? That's just a common idiom. I don't have to say the whole thing to you to, to understand or assume my meaning. You just understand. So that's essentially what Paul is doing here. He's quoting from Habakkuk, who is a prophet in the Old Testament. And people are asking Habakkuk, what... God's vision for us is, and Habakkuk receives word that God's kingdom, God's ultimate day of glory, is surely going to come into being. He says, if it seems to to tarry, wait for it, wait for it, for it will surely come. God's kingdom will not delay. And then this is the line Paul quotes. Paul quotes the second half, for the righteous will live by faith. But the first part is, Look at the proud. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them. Look at the proud. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Everything follows after this. Comes back to this really interesting phrase. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them, but the righteous, they will live by faith. In parentheses, we can almost hear faith that is not rooted in their own pride and ability. Look at the proud. As we wait for the kingdom of God to be revealed, some have become so prideful. Some have erected so many boundaries that they can't even see that it's Christ's faith, not ours, that sustains us. In the 1940s, one Christian thinker and mathematician began to use the mathematical principle of the bounded set versus the centered set to describe what this has done to the Christian faith. He said, we have been operating off of this idea of Christianity as bounded, Do you see it? Do you see this image? This divide between who's in and who's out? When all along, it is the faith of Jesus that is central to this Christian journey. Tearing down the boundaries. Our faith should look a heck of a lot more like this. Where Christ is in the center And the people around are all moving either away from or closer to Christ. But there is no boundary of in and out. 
Tony Campolo tells a story of when he was in Haiti well before the earthquake. And he was there doing some real work around human trafficking and health and livelihood of Haitian women. And he checked into the Holiday Inn and there was only one Holiday Inn in that country and he wanted to get cleaned up and shaved before he flew back to America. After getting cleaned up, he went to dinner and on his way back to his room after dinner, he was approached by three girls. He says that they were girls because there's really nothing else you could call them. They were about 12 or 13 and they were painted up and had lipstick smeared on their lips and they were trying to look sexy. It's, it's just hard. It's hard to look sexy when you're 12 or 13. And one of them, the girl in the middle said, Mister, you can have me for $10. And Tony said he just cringed. And he looked at the next girl and he asked her, what about you? Can I have you for $10 too? And she said, we, we. And, and he said, what about you? To the third girl, could I have you for $10 too? And she said, we. He said, well, I have $30, so I want you up in my room for $30. I'll see you in about a half hour. And when he walked in the hotel, he had realized a couple days before that they had this old VHS library. VHS videos, this old video library, all kinds of videos in English and in French, and a kid's section with a mixture of Disney classics and Veggie Tales. And he told the concierge, I want every video you have in that kid's section sent up to my room in like a half hour. And he called room service and he said, I want four of the biggest ice cream sundaes you can make. Whatever you have, chocolate, cherries, whipped cream, I want it all. In a, about a half hour, the girls arrived and scared, timidly taking a seat at the end of the bed. Almost directly after that arrived the videos and the ice cream. And he said they put on Finding Nemo and just ate ice cream and laughed at the video as Disney sort of took them into this other world. After that was over, they watched VeggieTales in French. After that, they watched the old Snow White and Cinderella movies. And around 11.30, he ordered a sandwich tray and lemonade, and they ate, and they watched more Veggie Tales and Disney movies. Until about 3 o'clock in the morning when the girls just passed out, fast asleep, and he's just sitting there in a nearby chair, and he looks at the three fast asleep, innocent prostitutes, and Paul's epistle to the Romans comes to mind. I'm not afraid of the gospel, for it is the righteousness of God from faithfulness. Tony will tell you he did not fix anything that night. He didn't change society's evils. He didn't speak Creole enough to introduce them to the faith or to Jesus. He didn't fix anything. The next day, they were going to be back on the streets. And some filthy John was going to take them up on their $10 special. But for one night, they got to be little girls moving in the direction of Jesus. And for one night, Tony got to be the lifelong over-churched Christian who was moving a little bit closer to the center. The question for us is not, are we in or are we out? 
And the question we ask the world of our atheist friend, of our Muslim neighbor, is not, are you in or are you out? The question we are to ask is, are you moving closer to or farther away from Jesus? And so I ask you that today. Where are you? Where are you up here? Are you moving closer to the center today?